You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. 20 minutes to 3 o'clock. Time for The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith is with us. Send through your questions on 0727021702. You can send a WhatsApp or a voice note or give us a call 011 Dr. Chris, happy Monday. How are you doing? Happy Monday. I'm pretty good. How are you? I am good. I am good. And uh, we have already stolen some of your time uh, to have such a, a, a big, interesting conversation. But I'm wondering, doctor, just coming off of the, 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 the part of the learning barriers, um, I was asking our educational psychologist about how some um, people, for example, on the spectrum, some people consider them geniuses. And our educational psychologist was saying, yes, while you can celebrate that some kids on the spectrum um, might be geniuses, not all of them are. What does any of the research or studies that you have read said about children that might be on the spectrum or have certain learning challenges? Well, when we're talking about geniuses, often this is referring to people who are called savants. They have a particularly well-developed skill in one particular area. You don't see an individual who's generalised across the board a brilliant everything. You don't see a musician who's also an amazing artist, who's also socially very uh, accomplished, etc. You tend to see unusual development or skill in one particular area but this may come at the cost of other skills. Mm. And when people have looked at the brain scans from individuals who have various of these sorts of things going on, what you find is what we call a connectivity difference. We've got various ways of mapping out how different bits of the brain talk to each other now. You put people into a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner and you look at how when one region of the brain is active, what it's doing in terms of recruiting or connecting or sending or exchanging information with other brain areas. You can build a sort of map of how that looks for an average person if there Mm. is such a thing. When you then look at people who have these unusually developed skills, you will find that there are differences in that pattern of connection. It's not that the brain is grossly different, but the way in which information is exchanged, the bandwidth, if you like, that connects some areas with other areas, is different. And this, we think, underpins at least some of the behavioural changes that these people manifest. But it does mean that if you've got some areas that are much more richly connected than in someone who would we would call normal, then it means that they can process a lot more information or they're seeing a bit like a sort of visual analogy. We can see all the colours of the rainbow, but some people have the ability to see beyond that spectrum, Mm. let's say, in their mind's eye. And this gives them the ability to grapple with things in a way that a normal brain, normally wired, would struggle to do. And this is why you find these people who have extraordinary mathematical ability, but because they're doing that, they may be robbing connectivity or that may be harboring or hampering the ability to exchange information between other disparate brain areas and therefore affect other aspects of their day-to-day life, for example. Yeah, I find that so interesting. And I think what you're saying about how it might compromise certain things. Um, but I'm glad we live in a time where we can appreciate that a person, while they're not packaged the way the average person is packaged, we can recognize the genius and the awesomeness within them. So let's look at some of the questions uh, that have come through for you, Dr. Chris Smith. Hello, Doc. And hello everybody, 702. Uh, I heard someone saying that there's a place uh, somewhere in the world that uh, it stays, uh, it is always Monday's example. If you take a tennis ball, 
if you take the world is round, the earth, uh, the, 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 this place is based on top. So it's always mud day in that place. Please explain that. Thank you. Hi, Apologies, doctor. <laughs> yes, go ahead. I think what he's getting at is that if you think about planet Earth, it's a ball and it's spinning around its axis between the North and South Pole or thereabouts. And this means that at the equator, the surface of the Earth, which is about 30,000 or so kilometers around, is doing a complete revolution every 24 hours. And so therefore, at that point on Earth's surface, you are going about 1,000 kilometers an hour or so, maybe 1,500. And as a result of that, you are seeing the sun go across the sky for you. The sun isn't really moving. You're spinning. So that's why the sun appears to go across the sky. And the distance that you have moved is quite phenomenal because you've gone around at 1,500 kilometers an hour. If you went and stood at the North Pole, though, or at the South Pole, for that matter, then the ground beneath your feet is moving much less, if you think about it, because that's the point of rotation. And this is why you get these funny day lengths at certain times of the year as well, partly. But th this is why the distance that you're moving at the equator is far greater than the distance you're actually moving if you're standing at the North Pole. I think that's what he's getting at. All right, let's go to the lines. Mzwake in Gatlehong. Hi. Hi, I just want to find out that I caught the conversation midway. MB dexterity. Mm. Does the the training of yourself to be able to use right and left feet, right and left hand mm. almost equally, does it create some greater connections or genius connections that one would otherwise not be able to tap into mm. if you are not MB dexterous? Yes, yes. Nice one, Mzwake. Hi, I'm sorry. Well, the answer to this is that 90% of the population are right-handed. And this is because the left side of their brain is called dominant. But of course, you spend your entire life, therefore, becoming extremely good doing things with your right hand at the cost of doing things with your left hand. But ask anybody that's broken their wrist and hasn't been able to use their right hand how they got on. And they'll say, well, initially it was a struggle, but then I got quite good at using my left hand. In other words, practice makes perfect. And the one thing about the human brain and, and other animals' brains, for that matter, is that it's an incredibly plastic or uh, moldable organ. And the more you use certain pathways, the more you reinforce and strengthen them. Now, this is most pronounced in childhood. Children are the most adaptable, the most plastic of all. And the evidence for this is if someone, young child, heaven forbid, has some kind of brain problem that means that part of their brain is damaged or removed at birth, then they can compensate in a way that an adult never would. And they can reroute circuits and everything. But nevertheless, adults do become really very good at using the other hand. So what we really call ambidextrous probably doesn't exist. What it is, is someone who's well-practiced or perhaps has a natural tendency to be able to be more adaptable and reprogramming their motor pathways and so on to become good at using both hands. But most people can become good at using one hand, they just prefer to use their dominant hand, their right hand, because that's the way that their brain is wired. It doesn't mean that you can't change those connections and strengthen the ones that control your left hand and become pretty good the more practice that you have. Okay, um, we've got Mlilo in Guatemala. Hi, Mlilo. Hi, Sam, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? I'm all right, Sam. Mm, go ahead. My, yeah, my question for, for, for Chris is what would happen if you take uh, meat and feed it uh, to, to cattle and take food that's designed for happy horse and give it to say dogs, 
Wait, I didn't get the last part of your question. So you said if you take meat and give it to cattle, and then if you take... The food that is designed for, for cattle. Yes. And give it and feed it, and feed it to, to carnivores like dogs. Okay, I get what you're saying, Mlilo. Um, uh, doctor, so if you try to feed meat to non-meat-eating animals and try to feed um, cattle feed, for example. My suspicion mm. is dogs eat pretty much anything. <laughs> so, yeah, dogs definitely uh, eat anything. There's a wonderful TikTok video someone's made and published where they say, it's in French, so you have to speak French to get the humour, but the person says, I'm just going to put this in the bin. And they open the cupboard, and in the cupboard is a, a black bag around the neck of a dog, and it's a black Labrador in there, and and they just feed this scraps to this dog, <laughs> and, and then shut the cupboard again, and it, it's very very funny. But the the answer to this one is that obviously animals have adapted and evolved to eat the diet that they have adapted and evolved to flourish and thrive on best. Dogs are omnivorous; they will eat anything, and that's part of their success story. We fed them scraps, and that's why they became very very good at hoovering up anything that they can get their paws on. And then, and and they became really good at making good use of what we would want to throw away. Other animals are obliged to eat plant-based matter naturally. So cows are ruminants. What that means is they eat grass, but they don't actually eat the grass. What they do is they swallow grass, which they then feed to bacteria in their stomach, and the bacteria in their stomach digest the grass for them, and the bacteria are effectively feeding the cow. So the cow feeds its bacteria and the bacteria feed the cow because the cow is then digesting the proteins and the other things that come out of the bacteria that can digest the grass, the cows can't, and that's what feeds the cow. You can feed animals other sorts of foodstuffs, and this can come at your cost. And the whole question about mad cow disease, which surfaced in the 1980s and 1990s in the UK and was discovered there, is because what was happening is to boost milk yields and also encourages cows that are beef beef producing cows to fatten up quickly. Farmers were using a high protein feedstuff. That high protein feedstuff was basically rendered down cows. So the stuff that we didn't want to turn into choice cuts of meat for restaurants just went in the stew pot and got fed back to cows. The downside of doing that apart from the fact i mean it fed the cows okay because they could absorb the proteins and, and the amino acids and so on just as they would from the bacteria that in, the, in their diet but unfortunately cows also are, can develop a disease a bit like cjd creutzfeldt jakob disease in humans which is a bse bovine spongiform encephalopathy and this is the build-up in the brain of an abnormal protein a prion protein which, by some mechanism that we're only really just beginning to understand now, can change other normal prion proteins into an abnormal configuration, which is a bit spiky and very, very stable. And when it does that, it makes a new version of itself from the other otherwise healthy protein, which then goes off and converts another one and another one. And you get this positive feedback loop in the, in the brain, which slowly destroys the nervous system. Well, if you have an animal that dies and its brain is full of this stuff, and you then feed it to a whole bunch of other animals, they can catch, in inverted commas, this same disease. And that is what happened in the UK dairy herd. We ended up with cows that were incubating this disease, and the worry was this could pass into people. So you can feed animals on things that they're not adapted to feed on, but there could well be consequences, which is why we are now very, very cautious about doing this kind of thing without thinking about it very carefully first. Okay, let's go to more of the questions that are coming through. Hi, Dr. Chris. Um, and Levo. 
Some of the engineering books, they say fluid is, uh, can be something that's like water and uh, there's also gases are also regarded as fluid. When an aeroplane flies, the air molecules go under the wings and it makes the airplane go up. But when the, when the bed is flying, is pushing the wings up and down. Now, if I imagine that to be inside the water, I'm not sure how how the lift was going to be created. Can you explain how the how the bed manages to get the lift when when its wings are going up and down, but the plane's uh, wings are stable and not going up and down? It's uh, MJ in preserve. Thanks, MJ. Right, okay. The answer is that you have to become familiar with the work of Isaac Newton to explain this. Isaac Newton was working a few hundred years ago in Trinity College, just down the road from where I am now. And he came up with three laws of motion. And the first law is that something stays where it is unless a force acts on it. Well, that's obvious. The second, well, it's obvious to us these days. The second law is that force is equal to mass, the, the thing you're moving around times the amount you accelerate it. And that will come in handy in a minute when we explain more about this. But the third law is that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So in other words, if you push on something, it pushes back on you equally hard. So if we envisage our air aircraft flying along, it is pushing on the air because the aircraft is being pushed along by the engines and that's pushing the plane into the air. As the air hits the plane's wings, there are two surfaces to consider, the lower side of the wing and the upper surface of the wing. Let's think about the lower surface first, because that's the easiest one to get your head around. If you look at the shape of the wing, it is curved downwards towards the back. So air that's going underneath the wing is being pushed from the front downwards and backwards. If you therefore push the air downwards and backwards, it will push you upwards and forwards. So you get a force upwards, and that's part of the lift force. And if the plane was flying along underwater, it would be exactly the same thing. Water would, would hit the wing and then be deflected downwards and backwards. And, and, and by pushing the water downwards, the water's going to push back on you equally hard and push you upwards. Right, so far so good. Now we think about the top surface of the wing. No need to get tangled up in all kinds of complicated uh, Bernoulli effects and all that kind of thing. Think about it simply like this. The surface of the wing is curved, but again ends up with the lower of the back of the wing being below the front of the wing. Air naturally sticks to a curved surface, and that's called the coander effect, if you want to look it up. And so as the air runs over the surface of the wing, it is being pulled down onto the curved surface of the wing, which goes from high to low. So you are pulling air down onto the top surface of the wing, and you're pulling it down more towards the back than at the front. Therefore, there is a net force because you pull on the air downwards, it pulls on you upwards. So both the top and the bottom surface of the wing will generate lift for the aircraft. And it would be exactly the same again underwater. Water flowing over the curved surface of the wing would be being pulled down onto that curvature at the back of the wing and therefore creating a force upwards. And if you want to demonstrate the coander effect for yourself in your kitchen sink, go and grab a spoon, which is a curved surface, turn the tap on at the kitchen sink, run a very thin stream of water down over the back of that spoon, and you'll see that the water follows the curve and continues to follow the curve and is deflected off the edge of the spoon at a funny angle because of the curvature of the spoon. That's what's happening on the top of the aircraft wing, and that is why you get a force from both the top and the bottom of the wing, which is in the upwards direction, because you're pushing air downwards. And if you shove air downwards, it shoves you upwards. 
All right. Uh, thank you so much for that question. Let's quickly go to King in Pretoria. Go ahead, King. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Go ahead. Um, I have a question for Dr. Chris. If, if you um like a gym person and then you blend your fruits together with oats and all that just to make sure that you get as much nutrients as you can, how does that uh, impact you are a recommended daily in chase because I noticed that my digestion system kind of like changed. Mm. So is there, is there any negative impact when you blend your foods or together with some of the food that you try to supplement for the gym? Oh, nice um, one, King. To be perfectly honest with you, your stomach and your intestines do a brilliant job of digesting, blending and mulching up what you put down your throat and you don't really need a blender to do that if you have teeth because your teeth do as good a job as the spiky wheel in the blender the exception to this is if you're eating things which are protected by some kind of hard indigestible outer coating sweet corn is a really good example of this and we all know what that means if you've had a look down the toilet the next day so you must chew up your food properly if you can't then blending it does help if to to break open food but you're not going to chemically alter the food other than that and really what what really matters here is what's in the food and how much of it you eat because the more food that you eat the more calories you're taking in the more micronutrients and the more you're going to be meeting the demands of what you're placing on your body and if you're doing a lot of exercise you're burning a lot of calories or you're trying to build a lot of muscle that takes a lot of protein you have to make sure that you've got adequate proteins in your diet not to an unhealthy extent but Blending it is the job of your stomach and your intestines, and you really don't have to do that. Some people do it because it makes a big meal more palatable and easy to get a massive amount of calories down quickly. It would take you a month of Sundays to chew all that up. But other than laziness, that's what teeth are for, and your stomach acid and your digestive enzymes and your guts. So uh, you can let nature take its course in that respect if you, if you don't want to have to blend all your food. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. We will be back together next week.